listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. We're switching things up a little bit this morning. Guys are going to come back up with some more songs a little later, just to keep it interesting. Uh, what, when I was younger, I was in elementary school. Um, you you got to know something about me. Maybe you don't already know this. I've got a brother who's about two and a half years younger than I am. And we're really good friends. We really are, even to this day and even as kids. But I had a problem growing up. I was an idiot. I really was. I was a moron. I made mistakes. I was constantly in trouble at school, constantly in trouble at home, and him not so much. Like, actually, let me just tell you one, one funny story about this. Like, when I was um, in, in second or third grade, I had this teacher who was just having problems with me, and so she called a parent-teacher conference. My mom and dad come into the room, and they're sitting down, and she's like, I don't know what to do with Chris. They're like, is he really bad? Well, he just talks all the time. I can't get anything done. He's always talking to everyone. You guys can't imagine that, I know. But he just, he just talks to everyone. I've tried everything. I've tried to move him across to a different seat. I've tried to put him next to kids who don't talk. He just talks to them. They just don't listen. He just talks. I've tried to take him out in the hallway and have a word with him. That doesn't work. I've tried everything. I've come down to the very last straw, and what I've tried this last week was I moved his desk directly next to my desk. I thought that would help. And my parents were like, oh, we're so sorry. So how did that work? And she's like, well, I thought it worked great because he wasn't talking to any other students until I realized he spent the whole day talking to me. <laughs> and she was like, ah, how do we make this stop? That, that was just the way it was. And, and at school, like, I wasn't a huge problem trial, but I was always just kind of in trouble. At home, it was worse. At school, I was annoying. At home, it was just bad. And so if there was, like, anything going on where I was in a fight with my brother, I had started it. Right? I was the kid who was sneaking around behind my parents, doing things I wasn't supposed to do, watching TV when I wasn't supposed to watch it, you know, trying out all the edgy words I had learned at school, just trying them out at home just to see how they sound coming out of my mouth. And so, like, that was all. Th- now, here's the deal. My brother was the opposite. Everyone saw my brother as, like, this angel. And my, me and my cousins, we picked on him because our grandma would greet him at the door, and she would say, hey, Chris, hey, Lee, hey, Clint, hey, Jason. And he was, like, 17 years old. So we're like, come on, right? And so, but when we talk about it now as adults, we joke how there was that dichotomy, how he acted one way and I acted another way. And he said, it wasn't that I was that much better than Chris. It was as I was just smart enough not to get caught. He said, the truth is, I learned a lot by watching my older brother and learning what not to do. Have you got anybody in your life like that? Like, they're the people in your life, you're like, if there's anything I need to learn from them, it's what not to do. I've got family members that I've watched their life and gone, I don't want to do that. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to do that. We can learn a lot by watching other people. It, this is a thing that we see all the time, especially when people make mistakes. What happens when you're driving down the road and you see somebody else pulled over on the side of the road by a police officer? What do you do? Tap the brakes, right? Why? You learn from their mistake. What do you do when you hear one of your neighbors has had, I don't know, their car broken into? You start locking your doors in your car, right? You, we learn from other people's mistakes. What do you do when you're, you find out your buddy uh, has been in the bathroom for two days because he ate at some sketchy taco joint? What do you do? You order pizza, right? That's what you do. Why? Because we learn from other people's mistakes. And that's really what this whole series that we've been in has been all about. Looking at the book of James, wise words from a former skeptic, and looked at the people that James was talking to and learned, what did they do that wasn't exactly up to God's standards, and how could we learn from their mistakes? So much of that. I love this book. 
Uh, if you're just joining us uh, for the first time for this week, uh, this series comes from the book of the Bible called James. It's near the end of the Bible. James was actually the half-brother of Jesus, and there was a time in his life where he was a skeptic. He was a straight-up doubter of whether or not Jesus was who he said he was, but he becomes a believer. He ends up being one of the foremost leaders of the church, ends up giving its life for his belief that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and that he that, uh, rose from the dead and all those things that, people, that Christians believe about Jesus, and James believed all that in the end. And so we've looked at what does it look like for a man to go from a place of no faith to a place of lots of faith. And throughout this book, we've learned a lot of things. See, a lot of people would say uh, that when you know something about God, when you know about God, and when you say, I believe that God exists, that that's, that's enough, right? That's what you need. It's good. I'm a good person, and I believe in God, right? Other people would say, you know, I, I have faith in God. But week after week, what we've learned is, especially through the book of James, that when you believe in God, a couple of things happen. One is actions start happening in your life. There's actually fruit from your belief. The things you do will match up with what you believe and what God says about you. And those things are powerful. And, and that was some things that we've learned in the past. We also learned that God isn't as concerned about us knowing about him, but that we are known by him intimately, that we have this relationship. And so there's some things that we've talked about. There's an author and, and a preacher, his name's Craig Groeschel, and, and he writes a book in which he asks the question, is it possible that you believe that God exists, but you don't act like it? That's, that's basically the question he asked in the book. Is it possible that you believe that God exists, but you don't act like it? And the book is called Christian Atheist. Have you ever heard that phrase? What is a Christian atheist? What does it mean to be a Christian atheist? It's kind of that idea of saying, I believe that there's a God but I'm not going to act like that really matters in my life. And as I look through the book of James, what I see is a people who might have been living that way. They knew some things about God. They believed about God, but their actions and the fruit of their life didn't always add up. And so here's an important question for us this morning. Is it possible that you know about God, that you believe in God, but you don't act like that matters? Is it possible? It's a topic that's been touched on a lot during this series, and it might be that you're like, we just talked about this like two weeks ago. So this is the last week we're going to step on it because it's something that James covers a lot. But the question is, is it possible that I've been living like a Christian atheist? Now, you might be someone who came here today and, and uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at all. You might even call yourself an atheist, just a normal atheist. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're joining us, and I want you to know this is a community of people where you can just come hang out, and there's no pressure for you to be racing towards some kind of enlightened truth. We're on the quest for this together. We're looking at the Bible every week, and that's why we meet every week, to just kind of encourage each other and grow. Uh, th there's, a, there's a prolific author and thinker named Brendan Manning, Brennan Manning, and he's written lots of books, but there's this quote that stuck with me from him since childhood for me, and I, I want to read it to you. It's kind of along the same lines of this Christian atheism. He says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips. Then they walk out the door and they deny him with their lifestyle. And that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And maybe you're having a hard time believing in God today. Like maybe it's something that you're dealing with. Maybe you've dealt with it your whole life. And maybe you look at this and you're like, yeah, I get that. Because if God is real and the people that say that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God say they believe in him, why wouldn't their lives be different? And I want you to know that as a community, as a family here at Venture Church, my prayer, my hope is that we won't be a community like that. That we'll be a community that says, no, it's, we're going to work for this thing. We're going to try to be different. We're going to make the city a better place because of the light we believe we shine of our lives. And so um, 
Maybe you're in that camp of people that's just trying to figure it out. I'm so glad you're here. And so uh, we're going to wrap up this book of James today. There's a big chunk at the end of the book of James. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them to give away for free back there by the coffee. By the way, there's coffee at the back. Feel free to go get a refill if you need some. There's some uh, coffee. That's coffee. There might be coffee under your chairs, but there's also free Bibles under some of your chairs. Uh, So grab a, a Bible if you want. And if you don't have one at all, feel free to just read along on the screen. But we're going to be looking at the book of James and just picking up at the end of chapter 4 where we left off, left off last week. James four thirteen. Our goal for this whole morning is this, to ask the question, is it possible that I believe that there's a God and that, that I know that he exists, but that I don't live like it matters? And answer the question, how do I avoid being a Christian atheist? I think there's three signs, three uh, markers that could let us know if we're living like a Christian atheist. And we're going to look at all three of those today that come from the end of the book of James. And so I'm just going to take those one by one and go through them. The first one uh, is this, that sometimes as a Christian atheist, we would make plans without inviting God. Without inviting God. There's a group of people that James is talking to who are doing this. Let's check it out. James chapter 4, verse 13. Here we go. James says, Listen now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city and we'll spend a year there and we'll carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this, do that, we'll live and do this or that. And as it is, you boast and you brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. People get pretty obsessed about the future. Uh, We do. Uh, We're a planning society. Most of you have in your pocket a a calendar on your phone, and you keep it down to the day, exactly what you plan on doing. You know what's coming up this this upcoming week. We talk about like our 10, 20, 30-year reunions and anniversaries, and we we, we plan for birthday parties. And, And it's good. It's good. We plan ahead. It's good that we do this. God wants us to be wise with our time. But James makes an interesting point. We don't control time. Why do we make such bold plans about time? When I found this verse uh, for the first time, suddenly about two-thirds of everything that any elderly person in my life had ever said to me made sense. I'll tell you what I mean. Maybe this happened to you. It did to me. Like my grandma and, and some of the older people like at the church I grew up at, they would always say, Lord willing, at the end in the beginning of every sentence, well, Lord willing, such and such. Well, Lord willing, such. my grandma would be like, well, we'll see you at Christmas. Lord willing. And I remember being like, well, why wouldn't the Lord want that? That seems weird. Like, why wouldn't the Lord will you to see me at Christmas? We'll see you at your birthday, Lord willing. Like, God's going to veto the birthday? Like, yeah, sorry, can't go to the birthday. You can have Christmas or the birthday, but not both. Come on. You know, they said this one phrase, and this is kind of like like an older generation thing, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, right? You ever hear that phrase? Apparently, there are two, the two most formidable forces against being there are the Lord's will and the creek. That is apparently outside everyone's home and is shutting down the roads, right? But the point is great. Like, this is a generation of people who understood that I am not in charge, right? I am not in control of the cosmos. I am not in charge of even tomorrow. And so I'm going to make some plans, but I understand that God needs to be invited into my plans. God has given us the free will to move through life and do what we want to do. He really has. That's why some people ask the question, uh, if there's a God, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a heavy question. One of the hard answers for that is because, well, God lets us make decisions. And sometimes bad things happen in the world, and it affects good people. 
right? And that's, that's part of the answer to that question. There's more. We talked about it. We talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. God allows us to live and move and walk and breathe in the world and make our own decisions. But what he wants us to do is invite him into every step. How does this work for us practically? Well, let's say you're looking at getting a new job. How do you invite God into the plan for your new job? Well, you can start to ask yourself some questions. You could begin to pray and think and ask uh, godly people for counsel. And you, you can say, okay, how would this move of job affect my, my faith? How would the setting affect the way that I can love and serve God? How would it affect my ability to be active in church? How, how would it be, affect my ability to, to, to get, do God's work in my life? How would this move affect my ability to be the type of father or husband or wife or mother or person, employer, employee that I think God would want me to be? How would this job move affect any of that? That's inviting God into your planning. It's a very simple thing, but we miss it all the time. It's the simple things like vacation or a day off. Like, how could you invite God on your vacation with you? Instead of saying, this is me time. Like, <laughs> I'll get back to God, but I'm going to get wasted on vacation. Like, that's what I'm planning on doing. Like, instead of doing that, what if we invited God into our planning for our vacation? I'm going to tell you what, I've done both. I've walked away from a vacation where I kind of forgot God and did my own thing, and I, I honestly didn't come back really refreshed. I've had other vacations where I'm like, God, I just want to be renewed by you. I want to kind of pray more, do some reading of the Bible that I wouldn't normally do because I've got a little extra time. Invite God in that pr- into that vacation. Man, it just changes the refreshment you get out of it. What if you invited him to your relationships? Maybe some of you are facing, uh, you, you want to start dating someone or you want to get married. What if you invited God into that plan and asked some of those same questions? How would this affect my ability to serve you, my ability to be involved in church, my ability to grow? Um, all these things. Even some of the smaller choices, and honestly, this is probably where we need to make the biggest steps of inviting God. Like, when we invite God to our weekend plans, and I'm going to go to this party. What if I invited God into that plan? The things I'm going to watch on TV, the websites I'm going to visit late at night or when I don't think anybody else is looking. What if I invited God into my planning? And so that's a huge thing. Solomon is a guy we find in the Old Testament of the Bible. He was a, he was a king, but he was also called the wisest man to ever live. And as he writes about this same kind of idea, uh, it's interesting as you follow Solomon's life, um, we're talking about what it's like to be a Christian atheist. Solomon wasn't a Christian. He was actually a Jew. But I think many times he might could have been called a Jewish atheist because he knew about God, but a lot of times he didn't live like God mattered. But out of his wisdom, he came up with this phrase that we read in Proverbs 16.9. It says, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. See, we can set a tra- trajectory of where we would like to be, but the key to inviting God into our planning is having God advise us on each step along the way. And God's like, it's cool if you want to do that, but make me part of the plan, inviting God into our planning. So that's a sign uh, that we need to be looking out for, making plans without inviting God. There's a couple more signs of a Christian atheist that I think James points out. We're going to get now into chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn over there. James chapter 5 is the last book in the Bible. And he kicks off as he addresses some of the wealthier people that he's writing to. Now, I want to go ahead and say this. When the Bible talks about rich people, sometimes you might not feel very rich. You're like, well, I've only got two cars. Come on. As Americans, guys, we live among the wealthiest people in the world. I think that the things that are said to rich people in the Bible, we could probably just take them straight to heart. Be like, yeah, this is pretty applicable to me. Even if you live in the lower echelon of of wealth in our nation, we've got things that we don't necessarily have to have, right? 
cell phones, for example, the internet, like there's things that we have. And so he addresses this richer group of people, and he talks about what I think could be the second sign of, of what it means to like stay away from being a Christian atheist. The second sign is this, that we manage our money without considering God. Manage our money without considering God. Here at Venture Church, we don't talk a whole lot about money every week, mostly because I think some of us have had a bad taste in our mouth from going to church and hearing about money in an unhealthy way. And I've said a few times, like, I'm not scared to talk about money. Jesus talks about it all the time. It's all throughout the Bible. It's something that kind of rules our life in many ways. The trick of talking about money is doing it in, in a healthy way, like a family should do. And so this is one of those times when James just brings it right out. We're going to look here um, in James chapter 5, verse 1, as, as he talks to the rich people in that group. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold, your silver, they're corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like a fire. You have hoarded your wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself on the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. How many people remember the Sony Walkman? You remember the Sony Walkman? Check this out. Remember this thing? Oh, let's skip ahead. There you go. Remember that bad boy? Some of you guys remember. Some of you are like, that's an artifact from ancient history. There it is. The Sony Walkman. We're going to talk a little bit about wealth for a second. Look at that bad boy. Wealth. In 1980, the Wall Street Journal called the Walkman one of the hottest new status symbols around. Yeah, who had one? Anybody? Yeah, you're old. Um, I have one too. And, and uh, they noted that U.S. Uh, owners faced a month-long wait because of backlogging orders, just like the iPhone 6 that's coming out, right? Can you imagine that now? Ma this is amazing. Okay, let me just read this, a little piece from an article that I looked at this week. Macworld.com talks about it. It says, the player, it was pretty innovative, the player had several features that were innovative for the time. Listen to this. Including dual headphone sockets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's more. Independent volume control for left and right audio channels. And this is one of the listed, this is innovation, the distinctive orange button <laughs> on the top that faded out uh, the music so that you could engage a microphone so that listeners could talk to someone nearby without having to stop the music or take off their headphones. How inconvenient. <laughs> this is amazing. Like, this is a device with both dual headphone sockets and an orange button. Can you believe it? Status symbol. People lined up around the block. The starting price for this, as, as I looked at it, was about 200 bucks. Now, granted, in your pocket today, many of you have a phone, I do, that is more powerful than uh, the computers that put a man on the moon, okay? That, literally. And so we have so much computing power in our pockets today, but this was innovation. This was a status symbol. This was wealth. And so let me ask you a question. What happened to the Sony Walkman? Where is it? How many of you guys still listen to it today? Yeah, maybe. If you do, that's awesome. <laughs> but you're probably not because it's probably lost and broken. And I want to use James's words to describe the Sony Walkman to you. It says, your wealth has rotted. The moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth 
in these last days. See, the people James is talking here have a problem with putting their faith in money and stuff, and we do it too. I need a new car. I need a new phone. I need new shoes. And God's like, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> need. What do we need to get by? It's wealth. And we hoard it. And we put our faith in it. We're like, if I just have one more thing, if I could just have one more thing to make me happy, one more thing to get me by, one more thing to make me seem cooler, one more thing to make me seem more beautiful. And the mistake that we can make when we are maybe trying to say that we're pursuing God is putting our faith and our trust in wealth rather than God or managing our money without considering God. You know how to be a Christian or even really believe in God to see what I'm saying, right? It means it's evident. We see that stuff fades away, right? People say you can't take a U-Haul to the grave, right? You can't take it with you. Um, One of the biggest problems that, that James is addressing here is in the early church, one of the greatest hallmarks of early Christianity was their generosity. I mean, they shared everything. If anybody had a need, people were selling everything they owned to help meet the need that somebody else had. And so the rich people helped out the poor, and they sold stuff so the community was never in need. And I'm not talking about enabling and funding lazy people. Like, that's not what the early church was all about. It wasn't about just enabling laziness. What it was about was about sharing and about being generous. I don't think God calls us to be poor. I don't think God calls us to have absolutely no wealth. I think there are times when that is absolutely something that Christian people choose to do and it's something that some Christian people are called to do. But I don't think that's the point. I honestly believe that he does bless us with good things. And he does bless us with money and resources. But the question is, how are we using it? And are we considering it him as we use it? Uh, Paul is a writer in the Bible uh, who writes to his friend Timothy. And he says this in Timothy 6, 6 through 10. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to talk about being wealthy? Seek godliness and seek contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You heard that before? Pretty popular phrase. People are like, that's in the Bible? Oh. It's a good phrase. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. How would God have you manage your wealth? There's a lot of things. We're actually going to do a whole teaching series on it in the fall. We can just talk about what God can help us do to to make sure that we're managing our wealth in a proper and God-honoring way. But there are three words I want you to jot down if you're a note taker or just remember them. These are the three words you can remember on how God would have you manage your wealth. The first one is generosity. The second one is kingdom-mindedness. That's actually two words, but you can kind of pretend. The third one is contentment. Generosity, kingdom-mindedness, and contentment. This past week, I was at Chick-fil-A with my family, my family and I took, uh, I took one of my daughter's french fries, and I ate it. She's five years old. She goes, hey, that's my french fry, which I would have felt the same way. But I had this moment where I was like, oh, hold up, you're a french fry? All right, your mom and I worked to pay for the french fry. We ordered the food. We carried it to the table. I opened your ketchup for you, and you're going to tell me that's your French fry. If, if we want to, if this is a battle of words here, this is my French fry, right? Along with your baby dolls and your clothes and your shoes. Like, you own nothing. <laughs> but I let her treat it like it's her own. And that's what God does with us. He's like, look, everything came from me, from my resources, from my mind, from my world, from my grace, from my provision, and I'm going to let you use it. 
I'm going to let you have as much as you want of it. But what I want you to do is manage it with generosity and kingdom-mindedness and contentment. And if you can manage that, you are inviting me into that part of your life. Don't be a Christian atheist. Treat your wealth with generosity and kingdom-mindedness and contentment. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of qualifiers for those three phrases in case you, maybe you're wondering what that is. Generosity, generosity, I think a really easy way to understand that. That's, that's being willing to share with others before blessing yourself. It's generosity. I wanna, your needs are important than, more important than my needs. That's generosity. There's more that could be said, but that's a, that's a little definition. How about kingdom-mindedness? Kingdom-mindedness, like all the world is God's and, and, and the things that are of God, we call that God's kingdom. Kingdom-mindedness is asking some of the questions about our, our wealth that we were asking about our time earlier and our planning. Like, how is me spending my money this way going to affect God's kingdom? How is me uh, helping out that person going to affect my understanding of God and my walk with God and things like that? Kingdom-mindedness, let's invite God into our planning with our finances. And then contentment. Contentment is being able to find completeness in God. Not in one more thing. Not in one more purchase. Not in a newer car, not in nicer clothes, not in the latest fashions or the newest shoes. Saying, God, you know what? I got what I got, and I'm thankful for that. I'm content. Generosity, kingdom-mindedness, and contentment. So we've talked about two signs of a Christian atheist, and I hope that as you're kind of going through these things, you're like, okay, cool. Those are some things I can work on. Those are things I can grow. Why? Because we're trying to learn from other people's mistakes. We're going to get into the last one here. It builds on what we've already learned, and so it's a little bit shorter to talk about. In week one, we learned that James's audience was actually living in this really perilous time for Christians. It was kind of illegal to be a Christian, and some of the Christians were being persecuted. Some of them were literally being dragged out of their houses and beaten and killed. It was a rough time for Christians all over the world. And so he returns to this sign number three of what it might look like to be a Christian atheist, and this is what it is. Sign number three of Christian atheism is suffering without trusting God. Because these people that were going through these hard times, they were going through some suffering. But they were looking to other outlets for fulfillment, other outlets for safety. Some of them were giving up on God. Some of them were renouncing their faith. And I think we do this a lot in our world. Those of you in the room today who might say, you know, I'm a Christian. How often when someone mentions Christianity do you shy down, back away, shut your mouth, and quit talking about it? It's not anything close to the persecution and suffering that people around the world are going through through their faith. But sometimes we back away and we try to find comfort in something else. And so I think we need to learn to suffer by trusting God. This is what he says in the book of James. He says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. That's a big phrase. Be patient. Wait on God. He's not going to leave you hanging. It says, see how the farmer waits for land to yield his valuable crops? And how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains? Like a farmer gets that you don't get instant gratification, but that God provides, right? He says, you too, be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. God sees us when we shy down and he backs away. We back away. And what he wants us to do is step up to the plate and say, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to sit through this storm. I'm going to trust you in this, God. He goes on in the next verse. He talks about this guy named Job. I want to talk about Job for just a second because that's kind of one of the illustrations that James uses to make his point about suffering. Uh, maybe you don't know the story of Job. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. Okay, very, very, very short, concise synopsis of Job's life. Job had it all. 
He had it all, man. He had wealth. He had property. He had an awesome family. He had respect. He had a, a wife that, that he loved and, and respected him. He had status in the community. He had everything that somebody could ask for. And the story of Job's life goes like this. Once upon a time, Job had it all, and then he lost it all. That's the first half of Job's life. That's how it goes for him. I, and, it, and it's not just like he just lost it because he made some terrible decisions. No, he was a good, good man. In fact, God says he's one of the most righteous men. But his cattle die. One day, like, this freak accident happens. His house just collapses. His, his kids are killed. Thing after thing happens. And, and any one of those things would put us in a tailspin of depression. He loses it all. He gets to the point where he's got this physical ailment. It's like these boils all over his body. Maybe you had chicken pox. Like, imagine chicken pox on crack. Like, these are some crazy chicken pox. I mean, you just got these, these boils all over your body, and you cannot get comfortable. You can't sit or lay down or stand without being uncomfortable. And he's got these friends around him. He's going to them, and he's like, oh, life is not fun right now. And you know what his friends say? His friends say, Job, you know what you need to do? You just need to curse God and die. Like, that's, that's your best option, Job. Just say, screw you, God, I'm out of here. Now, I say that, screw you, God, and, and that's a phrase that I've used many times. Why? Because I feel like that's a phrase that we use a lot in our heart. Things happen, and we're just like, screw you, God. I'm out. And that might seem irreverent to you. That might seem crazy, or you might be like, Psh, yeah, <laughs> yep, I said that yesterday. You might be in that place like Job. One, one thing here, maybe you feel like you've gone through some suffering. I encourage you to read Job's story. I often will read Job's story, and I'll be like, oh, life's not looking too bad now. <laughs> like, things are actually looking up now that I see what Job went through. And he's sitting in this place where he's literally about to say, screw you, God. And then God shows up. God speaks to Job. And I wish God would show up to me like this. Like, I just wish God would just be like, look, Chris, oh, you got questions? Okay, sit down, take some notes. Here you go. He, he hasn't done that to me. But he does it to Job. Check out Job 38, chapter 38, and I'm only going to read 18 verses. You might be like, 18 verses? That's a lot of verses. God goes off on Job for like four chapters, okay? And they're longer than 18 verses each. Uh, and it's kind of one, uh, one of those loving slaps that your parents might have given you on the hands because you were going to touch the stove. That's what he does here. Check out... Uh, Job 38, because God steps in right as God, Job is about to say, okay, curse God and die. God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Who is this? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid the cornerstones of the world while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Surely you remember that, Job, right? You were there. Who shuts up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed the limits for it and set its doors and bars in place and I said to the ocean, this far you may come and no further. This is the place where your proud waves will halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shapes like, like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. 
Job, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanse of the earth? You tell me if you know all this. Ooh, dad. Like when I hear Job reprimanded by God Almighty, I'm reminded of my place. Because sometimes we sit in life and we're like, if I was God, this is how I would do things. If I was God, I wouldn't let this happen. If I was God, if I was God, and God's like, okay. But you're not God. I'm God. Let me remind you of what I am capable of. And in all of that, it goes off on Job for a long time, but in all of that, you know what, if you read between the lines and he actually tells Job, I'm all-powerful, but I love you. I love you, and of all the things in this world, you are my special creation. Of all the things that I have dominion over, you are the one that I love the most. So things might seem hard right now, but don't turn your back on me because I love you and I have a plan that you can't understand. And when we're hurt and when we're broken, we stand there and we're like, how could this be true? But God says, look, just trust me. In your suffering, trust me. We could go on and on about James and how he talks about the different prophets and, and how they trusted God through all of this. But the thing I want to drive home is this, guys, whatever you're going through, and especially if you're one of our friends who have come in today for the first time and you're just kind of in a dark hole in your life, if there's anyone that you can turn to in your time of need, it's the God who has the power to do all of that. So don't turn your back on him. Job eventually turns his life back around to God, and it's amazing what God does to bless him. It's an awesome story. I encourage you to read it. And we talked about this before. Suffering is no fun. Many times we want to blame God for our suffering, and if that's you today, I want to encourage you to learn more about the God that we talk about here. And we place a lot of expectations and requirements on God, but really God's kind of like, I don't owe you anything. I've already given it all. And so we go to God and say, well, if God is real, then why would blank happen? And he says, I am real, and I got my reasons, and I don't have to tell you all of them. But you need to know that I love you, and I've built community for you to connect with, and they can help you through this. And so... We've looked at several signs of Christian atheism, and they're kind of all over the place. That's what I love about James. Like, he's, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. He's kind of ADD, and so that's why I really relate with him. But the way James goes is back and forth, but when it gets right down to it, I love his main point is solid. So we talked about uh, signs of Christian atheism. We plan without inviting God. We manage our money without considering God. We suffer without trusting God. And I guess when it gets right down to it, Christian atheism is doing anything without God. Anything without God. See, here's, here's the truth. Christian atheism is not a real religion. It's not. It's actually an oxymoron. You can't really have both. But it's a state of mind that we get in sometimes. It's easy to be inconsistent when it comes to us and God. And so as we close today, I, I want to take us into this cool, this cool time. Uh, God says, turn to me. Ask me for what you need, and I will show you. In the last part of, verse, uh, of, of chapter 5 in James, it says this. Is any of you in trouble? You could probably make this a checklist for your life, so... Let me ask you these questions. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? 
Well, let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make that sick person well. Well, The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We've talked a lot about prayer, and if you missed some of those messages, we'll, we'll do it again. But what I want to say is this. We can't do anything without inviting God if we want to say, I want to be all in on God. Here at Venture Church, we have a phrase. We call it being a God chaser. Being a God chaser, and uh, the idea of being a God chaser is that I put God in the center of everything that I do. I, I want to I make him in the center of my decisions, the center of my plans, the center of my hopes and dreams. I want to be a God chaser. Maybe you're here today, and you hear all this, and, and, and God is kind of like way down on your priority list. Here's all I want to encourage you to do. Just come back one more time. Just come back to hang out with us just, just one more time. Just listen to more of what this God's all about, and you can weigh it out for yourself. I encourage people all the time, like, don't take anybody's word for it. You, you do the research. You do the study yourself. You see if God lines up with the things he says he lines up with. Maybe you have been joining us for a while now, and you just haven't made the right out, outright decision that I'm going to be a God chaser. Well, when we learn in the Bible about how to become a God chaser, how to become a Christian, how to be someone that devotes your life to serving God, uh, the first thing that Christians will do is they'll get baptized. And we've had lots of baptisms here, and some of you have been a part of that, and maybe you've walked back to the swimming pool with us before, and you've been like, what are we doing we're going to go swimming? I didn't bring my trunks. Like, baptism is a, is a time when we say, I'm going to submit to God. And the Bible tells us that in baptism, we have uh, received the forgiveness of our sins. And God comes along with his Holy Spirit and helps us in our life. It's a major moment. It's like the wedding ceremony between us and God. Maybe you've been sitting in these seats for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you're going, no, nah, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Let's go all in. Become a God chaser today. You can make the decision to be baptized today. We'll line it up. We'll do it in the pool right after service, or we can just organize it. And I don't know, it's raining, I think. I hear rain. Let me just go outside and find a puddle. I don't know. <laughs> but make it real for you today. Today. Um, we're doing things a little bit backwards today than normal. And uh, we did the, the, the message up front, the teaching up front. Now the, the band's going to come up. We're going to do some songs because I love this last passage in the book of James. It says, Is any of you happy? Well, let him sing songs of praise. See, the cool thing about learning from people's mistakes is not that we get stuck in their mistakes. The cool thing about learning from people's mistakes is that we get to go, oh, there's a better way. Sweet. And then you get to have the reputation of my brother instead of the reputation of me. (laughs) So we're going to take some time to rejoice and some time to just uh, sing up some songs of praise and joy to God. So let me pray for you this morning before we do that. God, thank you so much for just giving us the opportunity to be together and have fun. Uh, To wrap up this great book of James and uh, wise words from a former skeptic. Maybe there's people in the room this morning who are just skeptical of you and they don't know exactly where they stand with you or where they want to stand with you. And and my prayer is that they can uh, just continue to hang out with us and maybe learn more about the love that you promised us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.